Why don't you open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and that's on page 1192. 1192. 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's going to be the focus of our attention this morning. Let's just pray before we read God's word. Father, we thank you that in your grace you've caused uh, for your words to be written down. And we thank you that uh, people have taken great time and patience to translate it into English. And we thank you that we can read and study together this morning, uh, free from anxieties that our meeting's going to be uh, watched or uh, will be attacked for being here. We thank you for the freedom that we enjoy in this country. And we pray on, Lord, for liberty and peace in this nation that the gospel may spread. And we ask now a a special blessing that you would uh, anoint me as the preacher and uh, those who hear as listeners that we may together hear um, your voice speaking to us. Please shape us as your holy people, we ask. In Christ's precious name, amen. 1 Timothy chapter 3 then. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. And then he spells out the mystery of godliness, speaking of the Lord Jesus. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. This is God's word. Have we got a problem with the PowerPoint? Is it... Just this screen is flickering away. 
Ah, no, we haven't. Great. Now, have you ever watched that uh, TV program, Super Nanny? Um, I think they're still showing reruns of Super Nanny. I think they've brought out an extra version called Extreme Parental Guidance. Uh, if you've ever seen this show, or if you've not seen let me explain it to you. It's a TV reality show where uh, a young family uh, is focused in on, and it's a, a, normally a young family where, which, whose lives have become a total nightmare because their children are out of control. Their children are... Uh, hyperactive, destructive, disobedient, and uh, sometimes even violent. And then, out of the blue, like um, Mary Poppins, Joe Frost, Super Nanny, comes in, and she spends a day with the family, she observes the family, and then she sits down and tells them how they can all make it much better. Have you seen that show? I have to say, I've only really watched it, the American version of it when I was living in America. They called it uh, Nanny 911, which is the number you dial... In an emergency in American, not 999, but 911. One of the things I noticed, I watched a couple of shows. One of the things I noticed was that often the nightmarish behavior of the children was directly linked to the poor parenting of the parents. I mean, it was a pretty obvious thing as you watched the show. Um, it was because the parents were not disciplining the kids, it was because the parents were not instructing their kids. Uh, and in fact, the parents themselves had sort of almost created or enabled these little Frankensteins. And really what Joe Frost was doing was coming in and helping them as parents to learn how to do basic teaching and basic discipline and, and help their children to, uh, to change. And so, you know, you, you, you basically observe this in the first part of the show when dad got annoyed and started shouting and throwing his children about. Guess what happened when the kids got annoyed? Just copied what dad did. Or if mum was neurotic and clingy, then the children were neurotic and clingy and dysfunctional. I mean, that, that's what you saw in the show. Now, teenagers here today, uh, I know you'd like to think that you're radically different to your parents. You're at this stage of life where you say, I'm going to be so different to my parents uh, in the things I don't like about my parents. But the truth is that as you get older, you realize you become more and more like your mum and dad, don't you? The older you get, the more you realize you've just become, as a bloke, like your dad, or if you weren't, just like your mum. The saying goes like this, the acorn does not uh, drop very far from the oak tree. And I think that's right, isn't it? Now, why do I say this this morning? Well, as parents profoundly shape their family, their household, so leaders profoundly shape a church. Kent Hughes uh, puts it this way, what the leaders are in microcosm the congregation will be in macrocosm as the years go by. And uh, that hit home to me when I uh, watched a TV documentary, again in, the, in America, called The Congregation. Uh, uh, and a documentary team basically went in to film uh, the first United Methodist Church of Germantown, Pennsylvania. And uh, they went in, and they hit the jackpot. They actually went in because they thought they were filming about the, the story of the tensions within a congregation because the new senior pastor had come in and had been a bit more formal than his predecessor. This was the tension. He was a bit more formal than the last guy. And so this camera crew came in to film what happened when the new guy came in. Well, they hit the jackpot because during the sermon on Easter Sunday, the uh, female associate pastor announced during that sermon that she was a practicing lesbian 
and her partner of the past two years was sitting in the congregation. Great TV. And uh, there were many things that saddened me about the program, but one of the things that I thought was most tragic was to see the response of the congregation. Having announced this, they all stood to their feet and applauded and cheered uh, the associate pastor. Now, how, how does it get to a place where a congregation that calls itself Christian stands up and applauds someone who's really declaring that they're totally unrepentant about their sin? How do you get to that stage? How does that happen? Well, the answer is this. They have had, up to that point, 20 years of being led and taught by thoroughgoing theological liberals. People who uh, basically uh, kept relativizing the teaching of the New Testament. We sort of read the Bible, we say, of course, but that was just cultural. That's not relevant for today. We're not bound to that. And after 20 years of that teaching, you get to that point where the whole congregation is thrilled at something that the Bible's quite clear is, is not something that pleases God in, in, in the way that we, in, in our human relations. And then the documentary team interviewed the senior pastor about what had happened. And this is what he affirmed. He said, well, today was a resurrection moment. This is what the gospel is about. So tragically, a two-hour documentary that was uh, focusing on a Christian church ended up proclaiming nothing about the true apostolic gospel and instead overturned and distorted, really, the knowledge of God and the truth of God in his word. And in a sense, while every person in that, that church who supported its existence were culpable in some way, the ultimate blame for the, the toxic, dysfunctional congregation there had to fall upon its leaders, upon its pastors. And that's partly what the letter of First uh, Timothy is about. Uh, back in chapter 1, we read of two men, Hymenaeus in verse 20, Hymenaeus and Alexander, uh, former leaders and possibly even elders of the church in Ephesus who Paul had excommunicated because of their false teaching. They'd begun to have an influence on the church in Ephesus. Their different doctrine was causing quarrels and controversies and, and envy and slander and twisted views on holiness and greed. And, and such a church no longer commends the gospel to the world, but instead kind of becomes toxic. It fails to show out the truth of God. Now, if you look at our chapter 3 and verse 15, it says something quite unique about what the church is. If I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And what it's saying there about this picture of the church is that the church holds up the truth of the gospel to the world. So Charlotte Chapel is, is, is one of a number of churches in this city of Edinburgh whose job is to hold up the truth of the gospel to Edinburgh. If people want to know the truth about God, the truth about the, the gospel, which you, you see in verse 16 about the Lord Jesus uh, coming fully God, fully man, uh, who died, 
was resurrected, seated at God's right hand, that this is the good news that is preached to the world, that is believe, being believed on throughout the whole world. People are getting saved, coming into, uh, into this church, that, that we hold up this wonderful gospel of the Lord Jesus to the world. And how we conduct ourselves as a church is an important way that the world gets to have a look at about the God that we say that we worship about the God that we're talking about, the gospel, as as they see the way that we interact together, the way that we're willing to forgive and love, repent, uh, encourage, uh, in the light of the gospel, the way that we act as a community holds up the gospel to the world. And, And in that context then, it is so important that we have good and godly leaders. That, that's the significance. And in a sense, you may sit here and think, oh, I talk about eldership, yawn, how boring. But actually, this is what's at stake, the cause of the gospel in Edinburgh. That's what's at stake every time we come around to elders' elections. Praise God, uh, we've had uh, many generations of, of, of elders who have upheld the truth of the gospel. But you know, we can't take that for granted. And every time we come around to a new time of a new uh, period of appointing elders, we need to know this is what's at stake. The, the, the clarity, the glory of the gospel being held out to the world as we relate together as the people of God. So we're taking the time this morning uh, with the nomination papers going out to examine this chapter and then tonight come back because we're going to be looking at some of the... Um, more sort of practical outworkings of that in the evening session. So but the first thing we need to see from chapter 3, verse 1, is that this task of leadership is a noble task. Here is a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. If you're from an Anglican background, an Episcopal background, and uh, you have an older version of your Bible, you'll see the word there is actually bishop, a bishop. If anyone says his heart on being a bishop, I don't know whether you know this, but there are 14 bishops in this church, if you include Rodney and myself. We have 14 bishops. We don't wear purple. We don't have funny hats or sticks uh, in, the, in, in, in the Acts of the Apostle throughout the New Testament. You'll see that these terms are interchangeable. Uh, bishop or overseer, elder, presbyter is the same word, and shepherd, pastor. So you've got pastor, elder, overseer, three terms that kind of interchangeably used of the same role. In a sense, though, each of those have slightly different focus. In a sense, the term elder emphasizes the spiritual maturity required for the office. Um, Overseer implies the leadership, the direction given to the church. And pastor is is a sort of the shepherd word, which suggests kind of the the willingness to go after lost sheep and, and, and to feed and nurture and protect God's flock. All those ideas are are linked to those words. And if there are men in the congregation who aspire to be spiritual leaders in this church, then what you desire is a really good thing. It's an excellent thing. It's a noble thing, it says here. But notice with me that the honor comes not from having a title, but from doing the work. It is a noble task, it says. Leadership is a task. It is work. It requires effort and strain. It's demanding work, but it's a noble work. It's a good labor. And I think it's right and proper for a congregation to honor and respect each man who, who holds the office of elder, for they have the job to, to watch over our souls. 
Uh, they, they have the responsibility that they'll be held accountable to before God about the way they've discharged that responsibility. It's an important and noble task. So it's a good thing to desire to step up, step up really into the responsibilities of leadership. But what's also clear from chapter 3 is that there are some important qualifications for the role. A noble task really uh, requires a noble life in what you've got there in verses 2 to 7. I think the first thing to notice as you look at these qualifications is how unexceptional the list is. Um, It doesn't say an overseer must have uh, exceptional intelligence, uh, an amazing charismatic personality. Uh, They must be exceptionally talented. It doesn't say any of that. Uh, the, The qualities listed are fairly unexceptional. He needs to be someone who doesn't get drunk If he's married, he's only married to one woman. Uh, Someone who manages his home well. I mean, those aren't exceptional characteristics, are they? And just in case any Christian here is just switching off because you think, well, I'm never going to become an overseer, an elder, it's important to see that these qualifications, these characteristics, are expected of all Christians. With the exception of maybe one and a bit of the qualifications, it's expected of everybody. And when it says that the elder... Uh, should not get drunk. It doesn't mean that the rest of the church can get drunk uh, as, whenever they want. Uh, the Bible makes it clear that, that drunkenness is a sin. And when it says that uh, the Christian leader should not be a lover of money, it's not as if everybody else can, can be sort of materialistic and greedy who are in the church. No, these, these are qualifications really that are just standard Christian values for every Christian. All Christians really are called to be hospitable, aren't we? To be welcomers of strangers. The only qualification that is not mandated upon every Christian is this one, uh, that they are able to teach. And we'll think about that more in a moment. So what I'm saying really is that this is a list of fairly unremarkable characteristics to begin with. But what it is saying is that the Christians who lead the church must model these Christian values. They must exemplify them. Uh, They're kind of expected of every Christian, but certainly the leaders should be marked in this way. Notice the word must. It appears four times in these seven verses. Look at verse 2. Now the overseer must be above reproach. See, these are non-negotiable qualifications. Uh, It's great that someone has a desire for leadership, um, and yet it's not enough just to have the desire. These qualifications must be met, or that person is unsuitable, the Bible says. And the reason for that is because an overseer leads by persuasive teaching. They lead by example. You read in 1 Peter 5. Not by being overbearing, domineering. Uh, spiritual leadership is by teaching God's word persuasively and by our lives kind of being an example of that. And so it's really important that leaders uh, are examples of these things. Verses 2 to 3. Let's think about it then. Uh, the main category there about, is really under this rubric, above reproach. That's the banner headline that we should be thinking of as you think about who to nominate, above reproach. Uh, critics really can't discredit his Christian profession of faith or prove him unfit. He, he's above reproach. And Paul spells out a number of uh, categories under that above reproach. Firstly, look at his marriage. He's to be the husband of one wife. Now, what exactly does that mean? Christians have kind of come up with a number of different 
possibilities. Some have taken it in a very wooden way and say that it's only married men who can be elders. But look and look two verses down. It, it also you'd have to say will it have, only have to be married men who have two children, because it says in plural his children are submissive. But as you read the New Testament and think about, say for instance, Paul's teaching in one Corinthians seven, where he commends singleness, because actually those who are single can give themselves in an undivided attention to the Lord's work. Then it'd be very surprising that uh, he was writing here that you had to be married to be an elder. I'm not going to discuss really all the options of what it could mean, but I think it really helps to understand that the underlying Greek is basically this phrase, we're talking about a one-woman man. We're looking for a man who's a one-woman man. Some people get hung up about the quantity of wives. The real issue is the character and the quality of the man. This is the sort of man that we're looking for. We're looking for a one-woman man, the sort of man who is faithful to his wife. Does that rule out polygamy? Yeah, of course it does, yes. But at a much deeper level, it rules out men who are basically flirts. You can be married and not be a one-woman man. Um, ruling out men who treat women who are not their wives. Um, you want men who treat women who are not their wives with purity, with decency and respect. Um, you don't want a sort of a man who in his work environment, the, the women are frightened to be around him. You don't want a man like that. You want a one-woman man. Does it rule out uh, a man who's been divorced and has been remarried? Um, well, I, I think each case would have to be weighed very carefully on that. But I think a man who has blamelessly sought to remain faithful within both of his marriages should not necessarily debar him from leadership. It depends if he fits his category of above reproach. And really, you'd have to look at that by a case-by-case thing. The next area that he talks about is, is his self-mastery. And there are three qualities there, aren't there? There's verse 2, temperate, self-controlled, and respectable. So we're looking for a man who's clear-headed in his thoughts and his judgment. We're looking for someone who can control himself outwardly in a way that is observable to others. And, and such a life uh, is one that's evidenced by, against the person who, who's, who's full of the fruit of the Spirit, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So you've got the marriage area, you've got self-mastery, and then it goes on to categories of ministry in verse 2. And there are two descriptions there, uh, hospitable and able to teach. An elder should be one who really joyfully opens his home and his meals to others, who's willing to share his life and home with others. And, and it's such an important quality, this. Uh, it means so much when you're on the receiving end of great hospitality, isn't it? You know what it is to be welcomed into someone's home, to be shown hospitality and care. It's a wonderful thing. And uh, that's one of the things that should mark an elder, hospitality. Be an hospitable person. And then the other area of ministry here, able to teach. Now, this presupposes, I think, at least two things. Number one, that, 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 that man possesses a knowledge of God and his word. And then secondly, that he has the ability to communicate that knowledge. Now both are important, aren't they? You have, you have to have someone who has a knowledge of God and his word and someone who's got the ability to communicate it. There's no point being a great communicator if you've got no knowledge of God 
and there's no point in a sense having lots of knowledge that you're not able to communicate. Both of those things you're looking at in, in men who are elders. Now this doesn't mean that you have to be able to preach and stand up here and preach to everybody, but certainly that you're able to teach at least one-to-one. You'll be able to get alongside somebody and teach them the truth. In the letter to Titus, uh, Paul puts it uh, in this way, in his, as he puts qualifications for elders in, in, in Titus. He says this, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. So we're looking for men who grab hold of the trustworthy message of the gospel, of the word. They've got a firm grip on it so that, he says, he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So we're looking for people who've got such a sufficient grasp on, on the truth of the word that they can actually get alongside us and encourage others from the Bible. They can actually refute those who are saying false teaching, false things, and say, well, actually, no, let's look at the Bible together. That's, I'm not sure that's right, is it? Let's look at the Bible has to say. You know, come back to what the Word has to say. So we're really looking for men who know their Bibles. Uh, not necessarily that you've got a theology degree, but you, you do, you read, the people who read the Word, it's part of their habit, has been for years and years and years, who study their Bibles, who know how to encourage others from Scripture, who know how to refute and having focused on the things that an elder should be like, he then stresses kind of the sorts of things that an elder should not be like in verse 3. And I think the list is fairly self-explanatory. They're not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. I heard a talk by Alistair Begg once, and he summed them up in this way. Imagine you're talking to someone at work, and you um, ask them whether they know uh, anything about this man called George who comes to your church and they say oh George yes oh I know George yeah he's the one who's always down at the bar that I visit yeah George is always down there the same spot with a beer in his hand he's always watching uh, whatever the FTSE index is doing where the stocks are going up and down he's yeah he's always there oh he's quite a character when he gets a few beers in him my goodness he can have an argument he always starts a fight once a month anyway why are you asking me about George Oh, well, well, we're thinking about pointing him as an elder. No, an, an elder of God's church should be a man who's not enslaved by alcohol, not dominated or controlled by money. And then Paul gives three tests uh, in verses 4 to 5. The test of the home life. Look at their family, verse 4. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. Now, I don't think this is about having children who exist in a state of sinless perfection. Um, you'd, they'd have to... Uh, well, it's not possible. <laughs> it, it, I don't think it relates to about children who've grown up and left home. I think this is about children who live at home under the authority of the father. Is there some order in the house? Do the children show respect to their father while they live at home? If, if, if the home looks like it needs the help of super nanny, then that person shouldn't be tasked with managing the care of God's family. It's as simple as that. Verse 5, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Now notice those two words for the overseer in verse 5. He's called to manage and care 
for God's church. That's what an overseer does. He manages and cares for God's church. And really, those are the qualities that should be evidenced at home. The father is not to be a tyrant who squashes all joy and vitality out of his children so that they're outwardly conforming but inwardly seething and despising him. Um, But there should be some loving but gentle, firm leadership in the home from the father. That's what should be witnessed in the home. And that's a good little test, isn't it? Good simple test. While not every man is called to be an elder or a pastor, the truth is if you're, if you're married and you've got a family, you're called to be the pastor of your home, to be the pastor of your wife, to be the pastor of, of any children that you might have. And uh, these are important questions to ask. You know, that, that of a potential elder, does, does he in his own home lead prayer? Does he lead the family in, in any family worship? Is there a time where they get together, the scriptures are opened, they pray for one another? Does he take a lead in that? That's important, isn't it? If that's not happening in the home, why would that happen in the church? Don Crasson notes this in one place. I've forgotten where I read it. The worst Christian home is one that has high spiritual pretensions but no performance. That's the sort of home that breeds very discouraged kids, I think. While the best are those with low spiritual pretensions, but genuine godliness. So there's the home life test. And then uh, you've got, in verse 6, the maturity test. How long have they been a Christian? See, regardless of how gifted or even how knowledgeable a person is, maturity is something that can only come with, with time and the humbling experience of living the Christian life for a while, I think. And the great danger, according to verse 6, of taking a young convert into leadership too soon is they get a fat head, become proud and susceptible to sins that lead to great condemnation. So are they a mature Christian believer? I think it's very odd when you meet people from um, missionaries from the Latter-day Saints of Christ Jesus, often teenagers, and they've got the tag elder. I think, well, no, look at you, you're... What are you, 18? You're an elder? Come off it. I don't think so. No, there's a certain level of maturity here that's being looked for, isn't there? And the third test is community, verse 7. How is he viewed by the non-Christian community? It's a fairly profound test, I think. You know, what do his work colleagues think of him? What do they say about him when he's not around? Um, over the years in Spokane, uh, where I pastored a church there, I, I sort of gradually started going to some of the businesses of the guys where I worked and I bumped it, you know, saw them in their workplace, used to go for a meal and chatted to various folk. Well, I remember one, uh, one conversation I had with the boss of a member of our congregation there and I asked him when, when this guy wasn't around, the member wasn't around, I said, what's this guy like to work with? And uh, it was a great joy for them to hear him to say, oh, I wish I had 10 of him. He's an amazing man to be around. That's terrific, isn't it? And yet it was tragic to talk to another man um, who came to our congregation there who, um, he wasn't a Christian, but he was checking out Christianity. And he was telling me about one man who he employed who was very loud about being a Christian. Always full of pious talk and always changing the radio to Christian stations. But over time, it came to light that this man was stealing in a significant way from the company. That's terrible, isn't it? How tragic. What a terrible picture is putting on Christ and, and the gospel. How tragic then to put a guy like that 
in a position of a spiritual leader amongst God's people. What scandal could fall on the whole church in that context? Leadership matters. These qualifications matter. Now, I hope that there are men in whose hearts is, they're starting to burn a desire to be a godly leader and in their home and in this church. And uh, so I'd encourage you to come this evening and um, hear more practically how we, 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 we've tried to work our eldership in the past at Charlotte and uh, the successes and failures of different things we've tried. Uh, we haven't got the perfect system yet. And we're going to talk about that together and talk about what we're hoping to see happen as you consider who to nominate. But you should be thinking as you pray about who you're going to nominate. Pray for those who have godly characteristics as we've found in this list. Basically, this list is about being godly, isn't it? Being a godly person. And also able to teach. So pray about those who you know that have a good grasp of the Bible. Those who are able to teach it. Men who you've learned from in the Word. Pray about those that you see that there's a delight and a joy in the gospel. People who care about sound doctrine. People who have a vision to reach out with the gospel, build people up with the gospel, send people out with the gospel. People who are willing to serve with a servant heart and shepherd the flock here at Charlotte. But can I ask you to pray uh, for the leaders here, to pray for your staff team? Because what these verses make clear is that this is all conducted in the context of a spiritual battle. Did you see that in verses 6 and 7? There is a danger of becoming conceited, verse 6, and falling under the same judgment as the devil. Verse 7, there is a danger of falling into disgrace and into the devil's trap. We are conducting our church life in the context of being the hunted There is a skillful hunter out there who delights to ensnare and trap leaders of Christ's church. He uses lots of different tools. Um, People talk about the three G's that often trip up elders. Girls, gold, and glory are often the common tools he uses. You know, the devil will use lots of tools to discourage and drain um, leadership. And please be praying for the leadership of this church and and for those who will come on for the next uh, round of leadership. Pray for them regularly. The devil would long to bring disgrace upon this church and uh, make us front news of the tabloids. He would love that, wouldn't he? Just to say, oh, this Christianity, this, this gospel is rubbish. Look at these fools. That's what the devil would love to do. How do you get to a place where a congregation stands up and applauds um, when one of the elders, one of the teachers, preachers is commending sin as something good? How do you get to that place? How do you get to a place where you get spiritual leaders who call what God has said is wrong Good and wonderful. How do you get to the place where a church can be sort of promoting New Age philosophies and Eastern religions, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is never heard? How do you get to that place? You get to that place very slowly. It's a little step at a time, and it happens 
when you start appointing the wrong people to leadership. People who don't know the word very well, who are not that committed to it, who don't have a passion for the gospel, who are not submitting their lives under the truth, bring some of them on, they appoint more like that, and as the years go by, you slowly get to a place where a congregation has been taught wrongly, poorly, incorrectly. That's how you get there. And so for the sake of the gospel, every generation has to fight for it, has to be convinced of it, has to hold firmly to it. And, and critical to this, every five years, and we thank God that, uh, that Charlotte Chapel has had a wonderful history of, of men who've upheld the truth of the gospel. And that's been true of the current elders. But let's pray as we come to this next round that we don't fumble the gospel, that we make good and godly appointments for the sake of the gospel in Edinburgh. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you that you care for us. You shepherd your people through your word and by your spirit. And part of the blessings of the arisen Christ is to appoint men who will teach the word and lead the flock and so we commit our church to you uh, this day as we begin the nomination process Father we examine our own hearts and we see in many ways that we fail and fall down and Lord we feel unequal to the task and yet we know that by your mercy and grace you will make us sufficient for the task of leadership and so I pray that you would bless this congregation as we go through this process. Lead us and unite us in the truth, we pray. We thank you for those men who have served so ably and well and devoted so much time in the past five or six years. And we thank you for each one. And we pray for us as we begin this process for uh, a new elders group, Lord, that you would uh, lead us in this. That we may be a faithful witness to Christ within this city. Lord, we ask this, that Christ would be glorified and that many more would hear the truth. In Christ's precious name, amen.